Good morning, church. My name is Brett. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Thank you for showing up here. And for those of you who are online, thank you for joining us today. In addition to the things that you saw on the screen, we've also been able to help internationally. As you know, this pandemic is a pandemic by way of definition that it hits just about every nation. And we've been able to serve Nigeria and the Philippines. Nigeria and the Philippines are two countries that uh, have found themselves in even, even dire straits, more dire straits than we are. Philippines has been on lockdown at an unusual level for the last seven months. I mean, nothing. You can't even go to work. And they don't have the kind of economy that can endure that. There are people that are very, very hungry. On top of that, they just had two typhoons, which are hurricanes in our world, in seven days. Flooding is enormous. Pastors from our church there have been displaced. It is devastating. And the church we have there in Manila is 90,000 people. It's the largest, one of the largest churches in the world, one of the five largest. And it is one of the more influential, obviously, in Manila, in the Philippines. Well, they've, they've completely depleted all of their benevolence fund because of the need of the 25 million people that are in Manila. And so because of your generosity, we were able to step up and stroke them a $10,000 check and say, use this as best you know how. And because of your generosity, if they have greater needs, we can distribute more. Same kind of thing in, in Nigeria, lockdown, but their economy cannot sustain that kind of difficulty and restraint like ours can. And people are starving. We've been able to twice help our, our church there that has 20, 20, 20 congregations in Nigeria and then 26 in the Western African area. Pastor Sam Ayadagban is a great friend of mine and his beautiful wife, Grace. We've been able to distribute $5,000 twice to them to make sure that people in their congregation and their community could have resources. Now, you think $5,000. Pastor Sam's church is 7,000 people, his local congregation. How far does that go? Well, our dollar goes pretty far in Nigeria. And I am on the phone. He, I'm on his speed dial. I said, if you need anything, you let me know. And so we are distributing resources from here to help the world. And I thank you for your generosity. And at the end, I'll talk about what it means to make sure you keep on doing what you're doing and don't grow weary in well-doing. But I'm going to do it here, and then I'll echo it later. Don't grow weary in well-doing and keep on doing what you're doing because you're helping literally to save people's lives. Thank you. Well, I've been gone for about four weeks. I haven't been gone. I've been watching. I have been preaching to some other congregations, and you'll see some benefit of that later. Not today, but other days. We're compiling a video where I was preaching in Orlando last week at a commemorative ceremony for a uh, horrible, infamous thing that happened 100 years ago in Ocoee, Florida, which is a suburb of Orlando, the largest election day massacre in history, American history. It was horrible. And they asked me to come in to give some perspective about what hope looks like. It was white Southerners that did not want black people to vote. And the city of Ocoee asked me to come in, along with our church there, to partner with them because they didn't know how to heal the community. They didn't know how to fix it. They knew they needed to say they were sorry, meaning the mayor called my pastor, the guy who was sent from this church, 
the pastor named Keith Tower, the big seven-foot-one guy that preached here a little while ago, called him and said, we don't know how to fix this generationally, but we think you do. We know you serve the community and you're, you have this multi-ethnic thing going on. And could you help us know what's best? Because we, we have no idea how to fix this. Pastor Keith said, uh, well, you know, we're a church, right? We bring Jesus into the mix and you're, you're a civil government. Are, are, are you sure? He said, I want the redemptive benefit that the church brings to be intentionally inserted in our environment. Rarely, rarely, rarely is the church ever consulted about civic things. Pastor Keith had the privilege of, of, of constructing the entire moment, four meetings for one week, and, and I was invited in to be the icing on the cake. It was an enormously great time. One of those things that you think, gosh, this is one of the reasons I'm created. This is so wonderful. And one of the reasons, not just I'm on the planet, but why we build the way we build, because we can say something that other places can't. Not just through our words, but through our lives and through our, our, our exhibition of what it looks like to make it work in here when it can't work out there. It was an enormous moment. Otherwise, I've been some other places preaching, but I am not so much talking about that, and that we will get to that in other sermons. But, but I'm really grateful for the people that filled in, aren't you? They did a great job. Pastor Jim Lafoon, Pastor Jim Critcher, and then, then that other kid, um, Pastor, who uh, he did a pretty good job. Tell us, did a pretty good job. Proud of him. And it's kind of a a picture. Um, First of all, we as a church locally are bigger than me. If it's only about me, we're in trouble. And so I intentionally try to spread out the influence so you can hear our voice from more people than just me. And when you begin to hear our voice from different places, you understand the influence of the same value system that you find in me is now in others, and if something were to happen to me untoward, you know this vision would continue. That's really encouraging and necessary if people want to go on beyond one generation. There are singular voices that are outstanding, and they are that for 40 or 50 years, but sooner or later, they get gray. (laughs) Or that which they used to have as gray is now gone, and the people in the pews get gray. And they only talk about remember when. I don't ever want that to be said about us except that we are adding our history to our future. Do you hear me? And so having young people preach here, having a a sense that somebody 30 years my junior can actually come in and make a difference and sound like what we sound like and what we need to have with respect to the vision being generated from the second generation on is absolutely critical to our progress. And this is what discipleship looks like. Did not Jesus do that with 12? Didn't the church do that with the the deacons that they anointed in Acts chapter 6? And didn't Paul do that as an apostolic leader with Timothy and Titus and Epaphras and all those who were with him, carrying the same message onto the next generation? That is our priority. So we are bigger than me. Secondly, we are, in terms of a vision, much bigger than Chantilly. We're bigger than Fairfax. Oh, that's not to say that we are more important. It's that our vision encompasses more than Fairfax and Ashburn and Loudoun. Our job is to help 
see the entire metropolitan area one to Christ. That's why this congregation is here to do that. And so if you were to miss me for a given two or three weeks, remember I'm still out there doing the job necessary that the Lord called us to do as a people, not just build a large congregation in Chantilly for Fairfax in the Northern Virginia area, but to see Washington, D.C. bow its knee to Christ. And I don't know that there is any, there's any more important time than now to see that happen, to put the influence of Christ and the deference that is needed to care about your neighbor more than your own personal interests, all those things together put in there so that people are responding the way God intended human beings to respond to one another. I don't know that there is a better time than the time in which we live and for the next decade to see the ministry of Christ have its way, not only in the, in the manner of supplying the needs of those who have great need in their, their personal lives and in their soul, but supplying the character and the witness of who Jesus is to a world that desperately needs to know what does it look like to be human? What did God think about when he thought about creating man? We want to be that in every way we possibly can. So, my vision, and remember, you know, I, I turn 60 next month. Yeah, 60 years old, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at some point, the birthdays aren't near as, as happy as they are relieving. <laughs> because the option's worse, isn't it? <laughs> the other, you don't want, not being here is not a good idea, so you want to have another one. But you're not bragging about, ooh, I'm 60. I can remember when I was 25 and I wanted to be 40. Because when I spoke, everybody said, oh, he's a, he's a nice young man. Uh, he's nice. He'll, he'll grow into something someday. And I just thought, wait a minute, I'm, I'm relevant to you now. But I just didn't have enough gravitas. I got to 40. And then they said, well, he needs to be a little younger. And I thought, wait now, wait now, what happened to the, where did I miss it? I want to make sure that the balance of my life, whatever it is, 20, 30, 40, the balance of my life is spent doing what I can do for the most and letting others do what they can do with their gift. And I know that my responsibility, when I was sent here in 1982, God sent me to help win Washington, right downtown, to do something to see the city impacted with the gospel. I didn't know that it would include Fairfax and Loudoun and, and Prince George's County and Montgomery County. I didn't know that it would. All I knew was that I, was, I, was, I needed to be obedient to that. And we have pulled the bow back, if you will, relocated our, our point of, of release to Chantilly. But pulling the bow back doesn't mean retreat. Pulling the arrow back here doesn't mean that somehow you've gone the wrong direction. It simply means you are preparing the arrow for its flight. And that's what we've done for the past 25 years, is pull it back. It doesn't mean that we're ever going to, to somehow forget about what is happening in Northern Virginia. I said the entire metropolitan area. And so we've concentrated on this, but we will concentrate greater on D.C. We are bigger than this. God help us 
to help you win this city. Turn with me over to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. The title of the message is The Conditions of the Soul, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, the Conditions of the Soul. We're going to look at the first three Beatitudes. They're described that in that they are beautiful sayings that Jesus gave, the kind of gave some scaffolding to his ministry, brought some construction boundaries so that people would understand where he was going with his message and what he was going to do with his life. We're going to look through the first three verses, well, first five verses, but first three Beatitudes today. And then hopefully the next time I'm up, we're going to look at the next three and then following the next two, um, or the next four the next time and the next two. I'm going to figure out how to do that with the Christmas sermons, but we'll get there when we get there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, verse 2, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 4, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Lord, help us as we study your word. Three things I'd like to talk to you about today. One, a sapped life. Two, a sorrowful soul. And three, a strength controlled. The context is that Jesus has been introduced to the entire Israelite nation by John the Baptist. And everybody's excited. John was the most respected voice of his day. He garnered the attention not only of the the populace, but the religious elite who were intimidated by his influence. And even Herod, who deeply respected him, in fact was afraid of him because his voice was so prominent. John was so powerful in his words that he, he, could, he could get people to come out into the wilderness to be baptized, even though there were baptismal fonts, if you will, in, in the area near the, the temple. Um, many of them, people, you could get dunked any time you wanted, just about in any city. But John was preaching out at the River Jordan, number one, because so many people needed to be dunked at the same time. Two, he wanted to get away from the influence of those who might tell him to shut up on a regular basis. And people were still coming out to him in the wilderness to hear what he had to say. I've got to work really hard to make sure the room is climatized for you all to come. It's got to be 75 in June, and it's got to be 75 in December. It can't be something that you have to trudge through in order to say, oh, the elements are too difficult. I can't get to church. Oh, it's just too hard to be in there. They didn't care. John was that great. I'm not. He was outstanding. And he's there, there at the River Jordan, and here comes Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. He said, there's one coming after me. You think I'm all that. There's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You think I'm amazing? And that meant in a a person's house, there was a servant who was the lowest servant in the house. And that servant's responsibility when somebody came in the home was to untie their sandals and to wash their feet. Remember, there was no pavement back then. Everything were dirt roads. So people's feet got pretty dirty. And they didn't have the idea about what it looked like to have soles that had actual leather all the way over the top of the foot. And so they wore sandals. And those sandals allowed for dirt to get in. The lowest servant was responsible to do that. 
John said, you think I'm amazing. I'm not even able to be the lowest servant in his house. That's how great he is. Introduced to the entire nation by his prophet, Jesus begins his ministry. And he picks some disciples. And, and he's, he's, he's garnering some attention because John had the, the greatest influence. He was the biggest minister in the nation at the time. And Jesus has this moment where people are gathering around him. He goes up on the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. Now we could look at this as his inaugural moment, but it's not, it's not perfectly superimposed over an inauguration because nobody has anointed him yet except John the Baptist. In other words, the society hasn't said, you are our leader. The religious leaders have not. Herod has not. Nobody has recognized Jesus except his prophet. And that's really all he needed. But in order to perfectly superimpose an inauguration over a moment like this, you've got to have the entire populace of the nation say, he is legit. And nobody has done that yet. Yet he is giving his... his his, his sayings and his opinions about how life ought to go and he's trying to set the tone for what his ministry is going to be like and the expectations of the disciples and how they need to posture themselves according to what the, the people will want Jesus to be and what they need to hear Jesus say he's going to be. And so he starts with saying, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Israelites have always looked at blessing in terms of material possessions. Not only in terms of material possessions, but surely they were included if a man was blessed. Here he says, blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. And they would never ever categorize Anybody being blessed if they were poor anything. It's not that they just had a prosperity, if you will, Old Testament gospel. It's just that they never saw anybody who was poor anything happy. So why in the world would Jesus start like this? Especially when he's ministering to a group of people that need to hear something that rings of hope that has some degree of tomorrow can be better than today. And Jesus is not just ministering to individuals so that they can have a better time. He is trying to set the tone for how the nation ought to be because they have already categorized him as somebody who can do something for them that they want. And don't we always, at some level, hope that Jesus will listen to our cry and be our servant to our needs? Come and help me do what I think is most important to my progress. They were pinning their hopes on this man in, in, in believing that he would deliver the, the, the nation from the, 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 the foot that happened to be on the neck of the Israelites. They were hoping that he would deliver them from the religious hypocrisy that had placed them in bondage every day. Jesus, be that for us. We understand that you might be the Messiah, and if you are, we know a little bit about what that ought to be in the Old Testament, that you're supposed to have a kingdom, and that kingdom's not supposed to end, and it's supposed to keep on going until it envelops the entire earth. We want to be a part of that kingdom. Jesus, that's great. Do it now. 
Kick out Herod now. They had an idea about what they needed. Deal with Rome now. You are the one. But Jesus was trying to right-size their expectations. Oh, and we don't, we don't find ourselves in a very different spot. Aren't we pinning our hopes, many of us, on some political candidate to help us out of our situation? Deliver us, please, from the thing in which we find ourselves. May I say with great clarity, the problems that America has are bigger than any one president or congressman or senator or city councilman can fix. Much bigger. Listen to me carefully. 60 million babies have been aborted in America, killed. The bill's going to come due. It's going to come due. We're way past just being forgiven for that. Judgment is coming. It's coming, and there's no man that can fix it. It's sad. My heart breaks. And for anybody who has experienced the moment whereby you gave up your baby, oh, we want to see you healed. We want to see you helped. But if you, are, if you are biblically sound, there is no way a nation can get away with killing humans. Amen. Cannot, cannot. I, I know that there are all kinds of existential reasons and circumstances. I get it. En masse, 60 million lives have been taken. And the bill will come due. We are under judgment even as we speak. The mercy is that we haven't perished as a nation. It's God's grace. But that, that, that ball is rolling downhill. And I don't know any of us can, that can stop it. The only thing that can, possibly, is a repentant church for allowing the culture to go this direction and not trying to figure out how in the world we could address the issues of being civically responsible or politically active. I'm not talking about that, though everybody needs to be civically responsible and politically as active as you can be. I just place no hope in my, my service or my vote changing what needs to have happen. I need my God to change whatever needs to happen while I am responsible as a citizen. I'm placing my hope in my God every day. Lord, you're, please... Have mercy. The only way I know this can be fixed is if our God comes down and has the church repent for not preaching the gospel as it should, not making disciples as it should. See, when you're in a democracy, see, a theocracy can fix stuff in a minute. Nobody wants one. We don't want a king. We want, a, we want our voice to have a say. I get it. I'm for that. I like voting. I like to be able to have freedom of speech. But when you're in a theocracy with a king... All he needs to do is just say this and it's done. There's no voting. There's no public opinion. It's a, it's a tyrannical rule. And if he chooses to be right with God like the kings were in the Old Testament, the nation gets blessed. Even if people aren't right, the nation is blessed because the king is right. He makes good decisions that are biblically sound. But when you got a democracy and the church doesn't do what it's supposed to do, what happens to the populace? The populace becomes that which is now not in favor of pr biblical principles. Church doesn't preach the gospel. They're not considering the Bible as a standard by which people ought to live. Therefore, they're not looking at the principles to be those which need to be inculcated into the, the jurisprudence system, into the legislative system, into the judicial system. They're not looking at that. It's just whatever they feel. I'm not blaming them. I'm just telling you this is the way it goes. So you get a democracy when the church doesn't preach the gospel that is now 
minimally, our God, meaning they don't care without God or against God. That's what we have. And as a result, it's not going to go well for America for a long time unless God's mercy just falls upon us, gets the church to repent, to do what it's supposed to do in its original formation in his thought, not ours, in his idea about what the church ought to do and see an awakening in our community. Otherwise, can't get away from 60 million. All of us are accountable for that. Can't. Yet we are looking for people to try to fix it, and it can't be. Oh, vote right. Be civically responsible. Do what you believe is most biblically sound in your conscience when casting whatever vote you cast in the next four or the next two. I hope you did it two weeks ago. We, we, need, to, we need that and we need to be responsible. But I place no hope on human beings being able to fix this. None. This is why I pray and fast for my nation. God have mercy. God have mercy. They were looking at Jesus. Fix this! And if there's anybody who could, it would have been him. He had the power. All power was at his fingertips. In the words of his mouth, he could have brought the kingdom down in a physical way, kicked Herod out, removed Pontius Pilate, told Rome where to go, and set it up to where everybody would have been happy. Could have, but he said there's something more important. Something more important. You see, he realized we've had monarchies. And that's how we got to where we are. (laughs) We had really good ones. David was the best, right? Then there was Hezekiah. There was Josiah. Wow, some really great kings. And it still didn't fix anything. Oh, it did for a few years, but it wasn't permanent. So that's not. The ultimate fix. Oh, it's, it might be temporary, and I'm, I'm happy for temporary. I am happy for temporary. But it's not permanent. Jesus came to bring permanence. How? By changing the human heart, not just the systems. Not just the laws, changing the human heart. Therefore, he starts with things that are counterintuitive to everything that people think. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are sitting there thinking... Okay, I'm, I feel real poor in spirit, but I don't feel very blessed. I don't, I'm not real happy about my condition at all. Now, many interpreters have said, poor in spirit is that which indicates humility. And the humility necessary to come before God, recognize who you are, recognize you are not him, and that he is God, and he rules over the affairs of men, and then submitting your life to him, and then you get to inherit things that he has, namely the kingdom of heaven, because he trusts your heart, and that you are now humble. That very well might be exactly what Jesus means, but I'm not quite sure. That's all he means. He's talking to a group of people that have only felt oppression, only oppression. And they're trying to figure out how to get out from under it. If you look at the original words in the Greek, poor means without, and spirit means breath. The word in in the Greek is pneuma. It means breath. Let's interpret it like they may have heard it, because I'm not quite sure the disciples knew anything about what being poor in spirit in terms of humility meant. This was a new concept to them if they were to hear it for the first time from Christ. 
Let's hear it like they may have heard it. Blessed are you who are without breath, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Any of y'all ever felt so tired like you couldn't go on? Life has just whipped you, sapped every bit of strength out of you. Your 16-year-old is driving you up a wall. Your husband doesn't know how much of an idiot he is. Your boss doesn't recognize your abilities and won't, won't promote you and promotes everybody else around you. You, you. You're trying to figure out how to make ends meet and there's not enough money for the end of the month. Have you ever been at a place where you were completely sapped of life and felt like, I don't know if I can get up today. I don't know if I can go on. I think that's what Jesus was trying to talk about in addition to the other. That when we find ourselves having run 400 meters faster than we've ever run it. And we, anybody ever done that? Don't. Just don't. If you haven't, good on you. I've done it. You felt like you're dying at the end. I'm not kidding. There's oxygen every place, but you can't find it. You feel like you are dying when you run 400 meters as fast as you possibly can. That's what we feel like sometimes when we are going through life, sapped of breath without breath. Where can I find anything that's going to sustain me today because I am whipped? God, I need your strength. Jesus says this, when you get to there, I just want you to know you're blessed because God's got something for you. It's not that you are blessed to get there. Although the blessing will come to you because you are there. Because there are a lot of people who get tired and never get the blessing. They don't, they don't search for it. They don't reach out to God for it. When I have found myself without the ability to go on, feeling like the pressure is too much, it's just too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. Lord, it, it would be great if you would come so that this thing could wind up. Lord, please. And he doesn't. And I wake up the next day realizing nothing has changed. I don't get discouraged. I say, Lord, that means that you must have a stash of kingdom benefit for me that I've yet to access. And I promise you today I'm going to look for it because I need it. Blessed are you who are without breath. For I've got kingdom benefit for you, power for you, strength for you, endurance for you. Come to me and get it. Secondly, blessed are you who mourn for you will be comforted. A whole society was mourning in Jesus' day. It had been 400 years since a prophet had prophesied. John the Baptist was the first one. 400 years from the time of Malachi to the time of the New Testament. And even when Malachi prophesied, it wasn't the best of times. Israel did not have a king. They were under... Uh, international rule from another nation, Persia, and then Greece. And there were a lot of different kingdoms decided to take ascendancy over the promised land. And so they were trying to figure out when is our date coming? And they were in mourning because they had lost their sovereignty. The, the Romans were taxing them financially above that which they could pay. And then their own tax collectors, Jewish people were taking more on top of that because they knew I could, they could do it with impunity. Rome wasn't going to get them. Rome didn't care how much they, they extra taxed 
the Israelites. And then if the Israelites tried to get the tax collector, Rome would come and get the Israelites. So these people could do whatever they wanted. Taxed overly so. I'm sure there wasn't, there weren't many, there weren't many Israelites that, that didn't feel like they weren't treated well by the, by the governing authorities. Maybe they were pulled over while being Israelite. <laughs> you get my point. What we've experienced isn't new, y'all. It happens all over the world. People not liking one another. People doing bad stuff to one another. People treating one another poorly. Happens all over the world, and it has happened since the beginning. Rome did no favors to Israel. And they were mourning over everything they had lost and what was supposed to be theirs. Every time somebody would read the Old Testament and look at Abraham and how he was supposed to be blessed, and so, was, so were his kids, they were sitting there thinking, when? Where his kids? When? It's been 500 years. When, when, when? Half a millennium? We haven't been blessed yet. When? Morning. He said, blessed are you who mourn. When you find yourself at the most difficult spot, and, and hear me, <laughs> when you combine being, being those who live in such a way that you're without breath and then combine mourning, Doesn't depression just kind of come to the front door and knock? If not, break down the door and try to set up shop in your house. You're tired, and then all of a sudden, you lost your job? You lost a loved one? You felt like you couldn't go on? You felt like it couldn't get any worse? And it does? Jesus realized the people to whom he was speaking, and he said, you're blessed, not because you go through it, because when you go through it, the Holy Spirit's going to do something for you. If you reach out to him, he will comfort you. He will strengthen you through it. Listen, everybody goes through a valley of the shadow of death. Some valleys are longer than others. I've been through short ones, and I've been through long ones. I'm going through a very long one now. It's been months upon months of trudging through this, trying to find the green pasture. I'm not complaining. I'm just reporting. If I have to go through for another year, I'm good with that because I've got my comforter with me. He gives me encouragement such that nobody even knows. If I don't tell them, my face doesn't reflect it. My attitude doesn't reflect it. My wife doesn't even know when I'm going through a difficult time. My children don't know. I go to my God. I do all of my loud speaking and crying in his presence. And I come out better than when I went in because there is a comfort that I am tapped into that I would not have otherwise. I'm a blessed man. <laughs> blessed. Even in the midst of my mourning. These are the conditions in which our souls find themselves. We can't escape these things. It's a part of life. It's the world in which we live. So how are we going to deal with it when we're out of breath and we've, we've suffered significant loss? We have our God. Mm. And lastly, strength control. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Meek is often described as that which is weak. And it's not. Meekness is actually the ability to have strength and sometimes not manifest it and only use it when it's needed. Strength under control. That's meekness. In old English times, ancient times of Britain, they would describe a horse as being meek. Now a horse that was ready for battle was generally about nine to 1,100 pounds. We're not talking about the kind of horses that run in the Kentucky Derby. These were stout animals, more like a quarter horse today. I don't know if you know the difference, but if you, if you put them beside one another, very different looking animals. Quarter horse would be more in line in terms of what war would, was, was needed for. And when the horse was ready to run into battle rather than run away, remember, um, animals that are herbivores, not omnivores or carnivores, herbivores generally are prey. So that means that carnivores are looking for them to get dinner. A horse is a herbivore. It only eats grass and stuff, leaves. So they run away from danger. That's how they're wired. When you can get a horse to run to danger, there's been some extensive training. Back then, when they heard the clash of metal and cannon fire, a horse would naturally run the opposite direction. But under the rider's control, he runs to the trouble. When a horse was described as meek, he took that strength that would normally help him to bolt and now uses it under the control of the rider. You want to be described as meek? Go to places where Jesus tells you to go, even if it means it costs your life. Oh, the saints of old. Paul, <laughs> you talk about a meek man. He was so meek, some people would consider him unwise. He would run right into places after they told him, they're going to treat you really bad there. They're going to beat you. They're going to imprison you. It's going to be horrible. He said in Acts 20, yeah, I know. Acts 20 and 21, yeah, I know. The Holy Spirit's already told me that, but I'm heading forward anyway. Meek. When you are like that, when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> God can use you to benefit humanity in ways that he cannot others because others will shy back thinking, well, that's going to cost me too much. They hear the, the clanging of metal. They hear the cannon fodder. And they say, I'm prey. I'm prey. I'm not predator. I got to go find safety. I can't, I can't go where, where it's dangerous. Blessed are the meek. Those who do not control their own actions, but submit themselves to a higher power. The, oh gosh, I don't even like to use that term. I used it as a descriptive, not as a title. They submit themselves to the Lord God Almighty, the God of the Bible. When they do that, God says this. Oh, you're in the place where I can give you stuff that I normally wouldn't give most people. I can entrust you with stuff now. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I can trust you with earthly things because I know you will never use them for your benefit. You don't care about your life that much. Your life is now in the control of somebody else. Blessed are you who are meek because I can give you whatever I want. And hear me now, I can give you whatever you want. 
Why? Because when you are that meek, you only want what he wants. I mean, when you're that meek, at some point, you get up in the morning and you look at your rider saying, we're going to battle today. We're going to battle today. <laughs> you know, you start prancing with your hoof on the, on the stall floor. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Your whole nature has changed. We're going to preach today. Who are we going to talk to on the campus today? Lord, who do you have for me in my office, my workplace to talk to today? Lord, what is it you have for me that is going to enable me to, to accomplish and push your will forward? Because that's all I'm here for is to do your will in the earth, not mine. When you are meek, and I'm not there yet, you not only get what God wants you to have, you ask for whatever you want, and he'll give it to you. Why? Because you're only asking for what he wants. Amen. These three things are conditions of the soul to which Jesus was trying to minister and get down in the heart of the people because whatever he was supposed to bring in terms of government would be better expressed through a soul, through the heart of a person that was changed rather than imposing more laws and trying to figure out how to make people do right. Now, if you can get on the inside of the soul, people will be right. And when people are right, they do right. And I'll close with this. Remember, laws are helpful. They're helpful. But generally, the laws are only for the people who want to obey them. Criminals don't care about laws. The laws are just to remind us, aren't they? And the more laws a society has, think about it for a minute, the more messed up they are. I don't know how many laws are on the Fairfax County books, but there are a bunch, more than should be. How many laws are on the federal books? More than should be. Let me give you an example, and I'll stop. If, when you're driving in the city, you see a, a sign uh, that, that tells you how fast, or excuse me, how slow you ought to go. <laughs> so you see a sign for 35 miles an hour, and you say to yourself, okay, I know this is a residential area. You see a sign for 25, you realize it's a real residential area. 45 is usually a boulevard, 55 highway. You understand those things. Yet, most of us, when we see 35, we say, eh, 40. <laughs> you get my point. But what if you saw a sign that said this as you drove into a community? No streaking allowed. <laughs> You're driving along, you see that sign. Why is that there? <laughs> why? why? Why do they have to put a sign that says no streaking allowed? Where am I? Where am I driving? Who are these people? <laughs> now, it ought to be common knowledge. No streaking allowed. But when you have to make a law for it, what does that tell you? <laughs> when you have more laws, it tells you a lot about your society. Fewer laws, few, more internal controls where you don't need them. Mankind is really good at making up ways to do wrong. And so we have to have more laws. Jesus is trying to change the heart so we don't have to have as many. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. You're a good God. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Empower us to be the kind of people we ought to be.